We have an extra special guest on the show today. He's a novelist and star of True TV's Impractical Jokers. It's James S. Murray. Hey, Mer. Hello, gentlemen. How are you today? Excellent. Thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm super excited to do this. Thank you for having me. We're both excited too, and because I knew you were coming on the show, I've produced some in-depth and cutting-edge questions for you to answer. Do you? I do. I'm ready. Just shoot them off rapid fire. I'll answer all of them. I got it. Right. Strap yourself in. What's your favorite challenge? Ah, <laughs> uh, okay. What's the next one? Pass. Oh. What's your favorite punishment? Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, no, get on to the good questions, Darren. Come on. Keep going. Keep going. What else do you got? Uh, who's your favorite joker? These are original? Darren? Come on! Keep on with us. Let me try one more. How long have you guys known each other? Come on! Uh, have you ever been asked ask these questions before? Are you kidding me? I have nightmares about these questions. Uh, I've been asked these exact same questions for seven years straight. 28 years we've known each other, Darren. You know that already, though. That's the crazy thing. You already know the answers to every one of these questions. Come on, man. For the sake of clarity, I do know him. He's fantastic to work with and just as great in the flesh. So, Carl, help. <laughs> Shall we focus on uh, the real reason that we're here today, and that's to talk about Awakened Mers. Ah, okay. Now I'm highly interested. <laughs> a couple of weeks ago, I, I was on Twitter and I saw a Periscope video you were talking about mm-hmm. the book, and mm-hmm. you told a really interesting story about getting this book published. You wrote it about a mm-hmm. decade ago, and you struggled mm-hmm. for a long time to get anyone to even read it, and now, mm. obviously... It's been purchased and it's being published by Harper Voyager. It's been optioned. I thought it was a really interesting story in publishing. And for anyone that's writing out there that wants to become an author, following your dreams, sticking with it. It's a common story with an uncommon ending, I'd say. I wrote the book on a dare. No joke. My friend, Chris Spear, he dared me. I had this idea for a short story. Actually, the first chapter I ever wrote, Darren, was the one where the two officers find the hole and they go down and climb and they hear the little girl's voice. That was the first chapter I ever wrote. And I wrote that on a dare for my friend. He said, you've had this idea you've been telling me about for a, like a horror story. Go write it. So I wrote it over a day or two, sent it to him. And he called me literally uh, 20 minutes later and said, this is great. This should be a whole book. Like what led to this? I literally spent a year writing it. So I have tremendous respect for what you guys do because I worked a lot harder on it than than you work in TV ever or certainly on the set of Jokers any day. (laughs) (laughs) Writing a novel is so much harder. I didn't have an agent at the time or anything. I did all my research on how to get it out there and I wrote what I still think is a killer query letter. The query letter had a metro card, which in New York City, that's how you get into the subway or the metro. Cool. And you swipe it in the machine. And, you know, and I included in every single query letter, the top left corner, I stapled a metro card with a full $2 fare on it. So I spent a couple hundred bucks in cards, and I sent them out. And the first line of the query letter said, the above metro card has a full $2 fare on it. Use it if you dare. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then it goes on to, what, it was a great hook. Great. You know, I got a ton of responses from the query letter. The problem was I was completely unknown, you know? I couldn't get any publisher to read it. I couldn't get any agent to read it. And this is when self-publishing was really in its nascent days. Like, it wasn't what it is now. You didn't have nearly as many opportunities. So it was a lot harder a process. And I also felt like, honestly, I was like, I wanted to succeed in, in the mainstream way before I went the way of self-publishing, you know? And so I couldn't get anybody to read it again and again and again. And uh, it just sat there on my computer for years. And then fast forward to uh, Impractical Jokers, and now we have our fan base. And I was able to sell it, finally. But I I realize now, it's funny, I didn't read it for a decade. I didn't read the book. And then 
I finally read it last fall, right before I contacted you, Darren. And uh, when Harper Voyager made an offer for the book, they said, we want you to hire somebody that's better looking, smarter, uh, writes faster than you. So I immediately thought of Darren. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it it was funny. They actually gave me a list of, I will say, about maybe 10, 12 authors that I should talk with that could polish it up and help me straighten it out and get it really into into publishing shape and add the extra special ingredients that were missing, which is, you know, obviously, Darren, you have a, a tremendous sense in how to write story and how to capture tone and voice and, and pace and, you know, how to describe things in ways I never even thought of. You know, that's not my skill. So they had me interview like a dozen people. And I mean, Darren, you and I immediately hit it off. I liked the vibe and the energy, and uh, and that's it. Now we're on pre-sale for the book, and it's going to be a fun process. The next year is going to be great. It is, yeah. Your story is one of the reasons why I'm proud to be even part of the project. It's pretty amazing when you think about it. And don't forget that you've got skills that I don't have. The flavor, the dramatic, those boom moments, killer dialogue. They all help me become a better writer. Awesome. And I'm excited for what we're going to do with it. You know, like... Uh, it's funny, when, when I wrote the book, I always thought it would be a series of many books. And Darren, I'm sure we're going to write many together, you know, the, the next chapter of this, of this saga and so on and so forth. And, uh, you know, obviously, we make a good and interesting team, a really good team. You have, the, obviously, the credibility in the industry. You've got the writing skills. You, you know how to write novels and, uh, and do it well. And you've got, the, obviously, the best-selling credit to your name and a fan base already built in. And, you know, my background is TV. I know how to sell TV shows. <laughs> yeah. So that, that's going to make a re- for a really interesting partnership between you and I for the next few years, I think. Yeah, I think so too. And I will also say that I was a genuine fan of Jokers before this came up. Uh, it's given Don and I hours and hours of entertainment, but it's so cool working with yeah. you on something that isn't the Jokers. Yeah, very cool. That is very, very cool. Uh, say if touch wood, this ends up on TV, which actor would you like to see play a certain character? I'll tell you mine before you say it. I'd love to see Donald Sutherland play Albert Van Ness. Oh, wow. Wow. I mean, you know, Sutherland is one of my favorite actors. One of my favorite actors in the whole world. You know? I mean, come on, the invasion of the body snatchers? Are you kidding me? Mm -hmm. The the ending of that movie, of of the new one, not the original one, the ending of that movie with Donald Sutherland is one of the best endings of a movie ever made. When his mouth just opens, he starts screaming and pointing at at the woman. (laughs) Holy... Yeah, I, I can see that, especially now, especially now with his long, flowing white mane of hair, you know, like he has in the Hunger Games movies. Forget it. There you go. I, I see that. I can do that. Yeah. 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 Darren, let me ask you a question. Who do you think you and I would play if this gets made into a TV show? What characters would we play? <laughs> <laughs> um, I would probably play Grady McGowan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I would love to see you as Cafferty. Oh, see, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I have the look. Uh, you know, <laughs> I'm not sure. I think I would play. <laughs> it's funny. I, uh, my friend Susan uh, has been my sounding board with a lot of the novels she read it to, and gave me some thoughts and advice on it. And I, the joke with her was that <laughs> I was going to cast her if it gets made into a TV or movie. I was going to cast her as either the physical subway train that people are on. Or as a monster. <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I, I don't know if I would be Caffrey. I, I think um, I could see actually Sal from Jokers, Sal and I, or Q and I, playing Sal and Mike, the two diesel engine drivers. That could be a good casting job. That would suit you two perfectly. Thanks. Yeah, it's going to be fun. I think that's what Sal and I or Q and I would play. Or you know, Yeah, I don't know what Joe would play if we, if we were to cast him in the show. 
Uh, I have I have some other ideas for other characters too, but uh, we'll see. We'll see what happens this fall. I was really interested in the concept of the book. I uh, have early look at some of the chapters as Darren and I mm-hmm. have worked together as well. Obviously, books said in New York. Uh, I believe you grew up in, on Staten Island, is that right, or around the area? Yes. Is there something sort of around the area, or is there something from your childhood or growing up there that inspired you to create the concept? Obviously, you're familiar well, with the area. I'm obsessed with trains. I've always been my entire life. I have a massive train table still in Staten Island, uh, in my parents' basement that I built from scratch. It's got to be, no joke, it's 32 feet long by 16 feet. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, a U-shape with a bridge connecting two points of the U. It's 32 feet by 16 feet by 16 feet by, if you can imagine a U like that, and they, a diagonal bridge. It's massive, no joke. So I was obsessed with trains my whole life, model train, model railroading. My father and I used to go see steam engines all the time and ride on them. I think I've been on every working steam engine still left in the United States that I've actually ridden on. I almost lost my life on a steam train, one of the few ones that are remaining in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, we, we were going through the Pocono Mountains, and they literally built this, this track on the edge of a cliff. They built it 100-plus years ago, and they have still have the steam train running, and uh, the track buckled. If you can imagine, we're riding along the edge of a cliff. The cliff side of the mountain buckled and went sideways so the whole train slid over toward the cliff and the only thing that stopped the whole train from going off the cliff was the wheels on the right side of the train the the mountain side of the train got snagged and caught on the buckled track that had flipped over sideways and it got snagged on it and we were literally on like a 45 degree angle tilting looking down at the canyon below us with no guardrails or nothing like that and i was like holy this is crazy Uh, so yeah i mean i have uh, an interesting history with trains i love them i I love them i'm obsessed with them the first short film i ever made darren i should send it your way is called subway it's about a monster in the subway it's the first short film I made. It was I made it in 2001, three years before the, the book. It's about this monster that stalks uh, people in the subways, you know? But she stalks criminals. It's a pretty interesting twist. You probably wrote it before Dexter started, who stalks serial killers. Yes, exactly right. Exactly right. Similar idea, you know? I'll send you the link. I'm surprised it hasn't wound its way up on Impractical Jokers yet, but I'm sure they'll use it against me somehow. (laughs) As a New Yorker, the subways are in your DNA, you know? It's part of daily life. The tube is for you guys in London. Trams and trains here in Melbourne. The trams and trains. It's just part of life. It's part of every single day life. I I take the subway all the time, and it's creepy down there. I was always obsessed with, you ever see Ghostbusters 2, the, the old pneumatic transit? You know, and they climb down to these old subway systems that are closed off from the public anymore. And they, you know, it's an old Grand Central Station, whatever. I'm obsessed with that stuff. Like, the, the whole fact that they built a, a secret subway tunnel connecting a Grand Central Station to get FDR out of Manhattan in case of attack on the United States during World War II. Like, that's, a, that's great shit. That's really interesting stuff. And I'm also obsessed with the idea of, um, I love alternate history tales. I also love alternate evolution and the whole hollow earth theory is super cool to me the idea that the world as you know it is not all there is so like as a kid i used to read about the marianas trench and and things like that it's just like a whole world that's undiscovered still to this day that's really interesting to me it's really interesting for me too like when you hear about thousands of acres of unexplored rainforest and you think what's there Mm -hmm. yeah that's great shit. That's all good inspiration for a novel like this. The basic hook of it, Carl, is that, um, you know, there's a whole nother world uh, underground 
that has evolved separately from humanity on the surface of the earth. And it's only now, especially in modern times, as humans dig deeper and deeper for our mega skyscrapers and for these massive construction projects around the world, it's only now using modern technology that we are uncovering this whole other alternate evolution that has happened underground that we have no idea about. And it's basically us or them. Now that we've awakened what's underneath, there can only be one survivor, humanity or them. I wish I didn't have to wait so long to read it. Cool thing is, this is where Darren has helped tremendously. Is that first book, of course, is one confined tale. It's about a particular discovery here in New York City underground that causes this whole chain of events. People will lose their lives. The new subway station underneath the East River gets destroyed in the process. And it's basically a very concise, single tale. But then you can see where we go from there. Obviously, in the second book, Darren and I are going to blow the roof off this whole thing. You're going to take it worldwide. We're going to expose the conspiracy more and more and really learn how this is unfolding around the world. And, and then it becomes an international thriller. And we'll kill a lot of people in the process, fictionally speaking, of course. We're going to kill a lot of fictional people. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I've been meaning to ask, because I know that we're both huge fans of genre fiction, my favourite books are the likes of I Am Legend, Altered Carbon, The Day of the Triffids. I love the originality of things like Breaking Bad, Ex Machina, just like I loved the originality of your book when I first read it. It's great. So that being said, do you have any books, TV shows, or films that have inspired you? Yeah, I mean, I Am Legend is fantastic. I love it. I was always terrified. At, like, my favorite horror movies are uh, Seven, of course, and hugely inspired me growing up. Event Horizon, I was terrified by. I still think it's super scary with Sam Neill and Lawrence Fishburne. Super scary. I grew up watching Nightmare on Elm Street Friday the 13th, of course. I was terrified by The original Nightmare on Elm Street was truly terrifying. It really was. Before it got kitschy, it was scary as hell. An absolute classic. Complete classic, you know? I mean, I grew up watching The Thing. The John Carpenter version of The Thing was hugely inspiring to me. I loved that ending, too, where you don't know. It's up to you as a viewer. Although, I will tell you, did you guys read that John Carpenter... Uh, basically told you what the ending was. Oh. The final shot of the thing, it's Kurt Russell and the uh, other guy, I can't remember his name, kind of looking at each other, not trusting each other. If you look at their eyes, there's a reflection in, in one of the guy's eyes of the flames, the whole station burning, and the other guy has no reflection of the flame in his eyes. And that's John Carpenter telling you that one is the creature and the other's not. He's, he's basically oh. telling you the ending. Yeah, it's very, very cool. But uh, I love endings like that, that it's up to you to decide what's going to happen. Which makes me think, Darren, for our future books, it's kind of expected that humanity is going to win, but maybe they won't. It's something for you and I to think about, my friend. Like I said before, it can only be one. Just imagine if you're in the last group of people that witnessed the final breath of humanity. It's a dramatic picture. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, did you guys see the movie Life? I did. I loved the ending of it, man. I totally fell for it, where the two pods go, you know, one's going back down to Earth and the other's going to outer space. And through clever cinematography, as a viewer, you think that it's going one way, it's not. I don't want to spoil it too much if you haven't seen it, but um, too bad you shouldn't be listening to the podcast then. Um, Perfected ending, especially for, you know... Oh my God, um, totally. What a great ending. And then what blew me away, this is kind of shit I love, the ending of life... Carl, you've heard the rumors online, but they're saying that that could be the prequel to the new Venom movie. My favorite Spider-Man villain is Venom, right? Wow. That could be a prequel to that. a Venom movie. The same writers of that wrote a script for the Venom movie. Or they're saying it could be the prequel for Cloverfield. It's another one. I like those kind of endings as well. 
one of my favorite books and miniseries of the last few years was Childhood's End. Mm-hmm. And that had a an ending you wouldn't sort of expect from, you know, movies these mm-hmm. sort of days. Again, it's the book's been out for decades, so I suppose yeah. it's not really spoiling anything, but humanity is essentially wiped out at the end of that. But there's still sort of an uplifting ending that a part of us lives on through... Uh, <laughs> through the aliens that did us in, I guess. It's yeah. a great character. <laughs> that, that, that sounds very uplifting. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. We're basically left with a small score of classical music in the gap where Earth was obliterated. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to think what else is hugely inspiring for me. One of my, my favourite movies. Well, let's see. I love the, the Arrival. I thought it was really, it was probably one of the best sci-fi films in the past decade. You know, I loved that one. Just was unexpected to me. I didn't see it coming. My favourite sci-fi movie it's probably Contact with Judy Foster. I probably watch that three, four times a year. And I love the ending of it, too. They reveal that there's 18 hours of footage she recorded on her headset. I love endings like that. I mean, that's essentially what we have here, Darren, with our book, is the ending with the reveal of what's going on, that this may not be over yet. I love stuff like that. Agreed 100%. I love those endings, too. I'm also a huge fan of the mind-bending fiction like The Matrix or Inception. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Inception, I loved it. Matrix, for a guy of a certain age, I think we're roughly the same age, Darren, right? Yeah. For a guy of our age, the Matrix was it. That was, that was it. I mean, I, when I saw, I remember seeing the Matrix in the movies and being like, I've never seen a movie like this, and I probably will never see a movie as good as this ever again. I still have vivid memories of watching that with a bunch of my friends. I was living in a village in the eastern part of England, and there was mm-hmm. only one small cinema or movie theater, and our house was about a seven-kilometer or five six mile walk along a beach and there was a big retaining wall and we walked in the middle of the night i guess we got out of there about 11 or 12 walking back along that beach freezing cold winter's night in england all Mm -hmm. doing bullet time and acting Mm -hmm. like neo etc and one of my mates got tossed off the wall as you do and that movie and that experience has always stuck with me you walk out of that picture house stunned after the Matrix. You think, what was that? The concept was mind-blowing. Yeah. Well, the uh, I have a one, the Oculus Virtual Reality headset in my apartment. And the best game for it that we play all the time is a game called Super Hot, which is basically bullet time. That's all it is. The characters aren't even fully rendered. You are there. You can grab, you know, you have, you have the hand sensors on, so you can grab guns or machine guns or bottles or knives whatever these unrendered kind of figures are coming at you in slow motion the faster you move the faster they move and you can essentially stop time if you stand totally still everything stops and then you have to try to kill them before they kill you it's the most fun game you've ever played in your life it's basically a real life matrix in virtual reality (laughs) you've got to let me try that someday it sounds brilliant I think this is one of the great benefits of us working together, that we both have a deep love of all things genre fiction. Yeah, me too. Me too. I will tell you, it has been a fun process trying to figure out some of the language differences between you and I. Like, that's been amusing. He'd send me a polish of a chapter, and I'd polish that and send it back to him. And a lot of my polish of his writing would be like i'd highlight a word and say what the fuck does that mean (laughs) that doesn't mean anything in america i don't know what that word is there were a bunch of times i was like i don't know it and and then and then you know when you you do a rewrite of a a whole book you know i mean it's 300 pages whatever 
So Darren, <laughs> Darren had this call. He didn't realize how many times he was using one word in the book because he hadn't gone through it yet. So he literally used the word gloom. It had to be 130 times in the book. <laughs> the, the, the characters head off into the gloom, into the gloom. And gloom in America doesn't really mean anything, you know? And it, But I think it came down to the point where I, I told him, I was like, Darren, if you use the word gloom again, I'm, this, this, this book is done. <laughs> it was great fun. The other day on the podcast, I stuttered on that very word because in my head I'm thinking, oh no, I'm saying it again. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably point out, I've known Darren a few more years than you have, Matt. There's a lot of words that he uh, uses that not everyone's aware of and probably (laughs) should, and a lot that probably you don't want to hear. Yeah. It was funny with the cultural differences. Like, you said, Darren, like, you know, we say oxygen, you say air. And funny, like, the word air is almost comical here. Like, you know, that instead of an oxygen tank, is an air tank. It literally, like, you sent me chapters back, and I would kind of be laughing at it because it it was more amusing than, than not, you know? Wasn't Cordon another one? Yeah, Cordon. I don't know what that word is. Yeah. I mean, I, I figured it out, but yeah, it's not a word we use here. I promise no more Cordon and Glooms. Carl, do you want to take us into the next part of the show? Yeah, this I think about our show, Darren and I, uh, we're pretty big into the weird and the wonderful and unexplained phenomenon and events. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've grown up in different countries than you have. We're just wondering if there's any sort of weird, unexplained events or urban legends, ghost stories, wacky conspiracies around where you grew up that you could share with us. I would tell you, I, I'm obsessed with obsessed with stuff like that. Obsessed. I grew up reading, uh, you probably don't have it there, but Time Magazine, Time Life used to publish these books called Mysteries of the Unexplained. It was a whole anthology series. They had maybe 30 of them. You'd get a new one each month. So one book was about Bigfoot. Another book was about Loch Ness Monster. Another book specifically on urban legends. Uh, Another book was on conspiracies or things like that. I was obsessed with it. They're still in my house in Staten Island. And you'd get a new one each month. This 200-page book, glossy lots of pictures. There was a time travel book. There was, you know, it was amazing. I used to love those series. It was like back in the day when Amazing Stories was on TV or Twilight Zone, things like that, you know, straight out of the early 80s. In Staten Island growing up, sure, we had plenty of urban legends. Oh, I will tell you a story before I tell the urban legend story. I'm so obsessed with this kind of stuff. I actually developed this show that I should have sold that should be on TV that didn't get on TV as happens often in television. But I created a show about urban legends where we had a guy, he's a guy that is one of the country's best haunted house designers. He builds these elaborate, amazing haunted houses that are steeped in a town's urban legends. So for example, he'll get hired by town in Pennsylvania, he'll go there, research all the urban legends and the local folklore of that town. Everything that scares the shit out of basically those residents, you know what I mean? We all have those stories. Mm-hmm. And he developed a haunted house specifically for that town that cannot be anywhere else, you know? Like, it wouldn't make sense anywhere else. Like, for example, in Jersey, he would design an entire haunted house that themed around the Jersey Devil, which is like the Tasmanian Devil you may have. Same thing, Jersey Devil has this creature in folklore that kills people and attacks small infants and things like that. So he would design an entire haunted house about that. If he went to, uh, maybe he'd include the forest, like the Jersey Pine Barrens, which are these very spooky forests in Jersey. You know what I mean? Like he would design houses that would be scare the shit out of those local residents. I love stuff like that. The urban legend in Staten Island growing up was Bedell Street. B-E-D-E-L-L. Okay. You can look at it. B- uh, might be one L. 
I grew up terrified of Bedell Street. All of us did. And the reason was this. There was an urban legend going around for I mean, my entire childhood growing up that if you drove down Bedell Street at night and turned off your headlights, a ghost would appear on the street. It was like a dead-end block way on the other far end of the island. Like there was nothing around, very dark, old woods on both sides. And it literally ended at the ocean. And if you drove down at night and turned your lights off in your car and turned your headlights off, a ghost would appear in front of you. We were terrified of this growing up. So anyways, we finally built up the courage in high school. My friends and I, maybe a sophomore, junior high school, we built up the courage to go down to Bedell Street. It's me, Q, from Impractical Jokers, mm-hmm. uh, my friend Chris Spear, who's the one who dared me to write this book, and then our other buddy, Colin. We drive down Bedell Street. We're going very slowly. And I'm like, all right, let me turn the headlights off. And I turn the headlights off, and we're just coasting straight, maybe five miles an hour. And sure than shit, I kid you not, a figure appears straight ahead of us. A white figure in the shape of a ghost appears floating in front of us, maybe 100 yards away. We can kind of see it. And I turn to the guys. I was like, do you see that forming? And as we get closer, it gets brighter and brighter. And I swear to God, it's levitating and moving. You know, There's a canopy of trees over us. It's pitch black. And we see this white light kind of forming in the shape of a ghost. And it's moving and kind of fluttering up and down and and left and right. (laughs) And we start screaming. We lose our shit. I'm like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm terrified. My heart is racing. The adrenaline's pumping. And then as you get right up to it, only then when you get right up to it do you realize what it is, which is the way the trees have grown over the block. It has blocked the light of a telephone pole <laughs> and the, le- the leaves, the canopy of trees and the leaves moving with the wind are creating a ghost that's moving in the sky in the middle of the block. It's in the middle of the street and it's an optical illusion and it terrified us. And we, you know, that's the biggest urban legend in Staten Island, I'd say, with else trees. It's great. Um, also, I'll give you another quick one too. Watch the movie Cropsey, C-R-O-P-S-E-Y, Cropsey. That's based on a real story about a mental asylum in Staten Island where a guy escaped and started killing people on Staten Island. That's based on a true story and has become urban legend. Like the story itself has become a larger legend and tale than the actual real events. I love shit like that. Do you have any ghost stories? We never got the ghost stories too much, except for a Bedell story like that, you know? Um, <laughs> the one time, uh, I'll tell you a funny story. And we, we used to tell it on stage, the guys and I. I have two older sisters. and. This is in the early 80s, or I mean right around the time of Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street. But my sister decided to throw a Halloween party. It had to be 1985, 1986. I'm 8, 9, 10 years old. And um, my sister decided to throw a Halloween party in our, in our backyard. I lived on a dead-end block. Very, very dark. This is 80s, Staten Island. When you watch the, the show Stranger Things, that is the way I grew up. Huh. No joke. Oh. That's precisely, to a T, my, my childhood. I'm riding bicycles, playing Dungeons and Dragons. The houses looked like that. It is to a T what it was like growing up in Staten Island in the 80s, right? So my sister decides to have her friends over on Halloween to our house. All these teenage girls, like 13, 14 years old. So they're already predisposed to scream, you know, and be terrified. My father and I decided to scare them. So I lived in a denim block next to woods. It was very dark and mysterious. And there was a tree right in front of the window of my bedroom. And I was terrified because the poltergeist came out right around then too. So I was convinced the tree was going to reach through the window and pull me out and, you know. So, yeah, so I was on a dead-end block, trees everywhere, super pitch black at night. 
my sister and her friends go out into the backyard and they light a little fire and they're telling ghost stories around the fire. So my father and I decide to uh, play a trick on them to scare them. My father grabs a full-blown axe. I mean, a real axe. We used to chop down trees back then. He grabs a full axe and puts one of my mother's stockings over his face, which if you haven't seen what that looks like on a person, it makes you look terrifying. Yeah. It just rips your face. <laughs> yeah, have, yeah. You, know, you ever see the, the Twilight Zone episode where everybody has that ugly face and yeah. at the end they take the woman's bandages off and she's beautiful? Yeah. You know, it, It's like that. That's what you look like oh. when you have a, a stocking on your face. And my father hops the fence and goes into the woods. And it's like a little chicken wire fence, you know? He goes in the woods and he starts throwing acorns into the yard. And the girls start hearing as they're telling a ghost story. And they start to notice that they're rustling in the woods. And they look to the woods. At that moment, my father runs out of the woods, leaps the fence, holding an axe and starts swinging the axe. And they <laughs> panic and scream and run into I mean, this is right around probably the 13th times, right? Yeah. They scream, run into the house. I'm hysterical laughing. What we didn't realize is that one of the girls had a heart condition. That was on us. We didn't know that. And she starts hyperventilating. We had to call her mother. They had to take her to the hospital. It was the whole thing. We didn't realize she had a heart condition. So she ran to the laundry room, locked herself in the laundry room, hyperventilating and screaming, crying. And we had to call the mother to kind of calm her down. My father came in, still holding the axe with the stocking over his face. And she's still crying. You know? And I was like, yeah, take the stocking off. He takes it off and... Anyways, the girl had to go see a doctor after that. It didn't have a good ending. No, the joke's gone all wrong as soon as that happened. Yeah. I'm just imagining your dad with a mask over his face, looking like he's off the movie poster of The Hills of Eyes in a blind panic. It's, <laughs> it's just great stories, Mo. We really appreciate you coming on and telling them for us. It's been excellent. But for the final part of the show, just a slight change of pace. There's two things I think we should cover. The first is... The Impractical Jokers are returning back to the UK in October, which we're all excited about. The first show is in Manchester, and all the proceeds for that, very generously, are going to be donated to the victims' families of the Manchester terrorist attack, or their families to help support them. So the city is grateful, and it certainly puts a tear in my eye. Well, thank you for mentioning that, Darren. I got to tell you, you know, you and I have spoken about this pretty extensively, but we've already performed at the Manchester Arena. We were there in, in January of this year. And it was a special night. It was, in the entire tour, it was likely the best show we did. The venue is amazing. It's as big as the O2. And it's Q's favorite city in all of the UK, no joke. The response we got in Manchester was, I think in every city we performed in, was the greatest response. I mean, the fan base was unbelievable. They were just so supportive of us. Look, you and I have talked about this, Darren. The guys and I are New Yorkers. I remember that day very vividly. When we went through what we went through, mm-hmm. Joe and I were editing. We were together in my house in Staten Island at the time when it unfolded. Sal was on the Staten Island ferry pulling into Manhattan and watched the whole thing directly. We all have friends that died. Uh, Q became a fireman in New York because of that incident. So we all lived through it. And I remember what it was like afterward. I remember, you know, the next day, Joe and I drove in the city. We're on the West Side Highway and uh, cheering as, as firemen. Yeah, I'm getting caught up. I'm sorry. <laughs> Forgive me. Um, it's still, uh, it's still hard to think about. Anyways, ugh, God, anyway, what I'm saying is this, when that happened, our hearts broke yeah. for you guys. You have endured a lot in the past year or two. You've endured a lot. And it's unfortunate that you're getting the brunt of all this lately and our hearts go out to you and it was the right thing to do. And we are very, very proud and excited to come back and begin the entire tour in Manchester and to help out the city as much as we can. Cause we, you know, our hearts broke with you. We endure with you. And we'll be standing by your side as long, you know, as long as we can. 
All we can say is thank you. It's a fantastic gesture. We're really pleased that you guys are coming back. It was touching that you thought of us. I obviously wasn't personally involved in it, but the very first person I received a text from was Mur, which says it all, really. He's such a great guy, and yeah. we appreciate what the Jokers are doing. Thank you. The final thing to cover, which is lighter but still on a positive note, is that Awakened is on pre-sale. <laughs> <laughs> I feel deeply conscious that these two different things barely deserve mentioning in the same breath. However, as we are wrapping up the show, you can pre-order the novel at smarturl.it forward slash Awakened Novel. Carl? <laughs> no, I just wanted to thank him uh, for coming on. It's a big well, help to us. I, new podcast. I, I w- I will tell you this, I know we don't like throwing throwing you a pre-sale of a book after a, a very serious topic, but, but I will say this. At times like that, what the world needs and what people need is an escape from things, you know? Like, there are two types of people in the world, right? People that build and people that destroy. That's it. And what you guys do is incredibly valuable. You create new stories, new tales, new realities. You create, you build, you build. And that's what Darren, you and I have done with Awakened. We built a whole new world that's exciting. And in Practical Jokers, it's the same thing. Like what, what we do is we build. I think your role as writers and my role as a writer and as a performer is to improve the world, to lift the human spirit. And horror can do that, and comedy can do that, and action can do that. It just builds. It builds stories, and that's what we need more than ever now. 